Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll pick up in verse 8 and read through verse 11 this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, thanking you, Lord, that you have provided, Lord, a way that we might have rest for our souls. Lord, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that, that which was upended and brought into upheaval because of the entrance of sin into the world, Lord, you have rediscovered and reestablished in the person of Christ. And Lord, we thank you that the benefits of his great work, Lord, have been applied to us so that we can truly say that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with you. Lord, may we come to a fuller and a greater understanding of this rest, of all that you have done for us in Christ. And Lord, we pray that we would be diligent day after day to enter into this rest, Lord, until we come to its completion in the life to come. So Lord, be with us today. Bless us. Lord, build us up in our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we begin this section uh, last week where the apostle is committing to us the necessity of entering into the spiritual rest that is founded upon Jesus Christ. And he's proving that this rest given to the children of Israel under the ministry of Joshua was not the ultimate, not the final, not the spiritual rest that can provide forgiveness for the sins of the people. If Joshua's rest was able to bring about eternal redemption, then there would not have been the need for another rest. The rest that the prophet David speaks of in Psalm 95, many years after the children of Israel had settled in the land of Canaan. In this, he proves that Joshua's rest was not able to deal with the primary problem of the people. Because man's true issue lies not in his outward circumstances, but in the condition of the heart. It is the sin of man that plagues the souls of man. It is the knowledge and guilt of our sins that torments us. It was sin that brought this present world into a state of unrest. When God created the world, he created it perfectly. He declared it to be very good. He was perfectly satisfied with the works of his hands. And Adam, his created being, entered into a state of rest with God in his creation there on the sixth day. But this rest was lost. And what was it that brought upheaval to both man and the created order? What entered into this world that brought about death, misery, chaos, confusion, right? That cast the world as we know it into a state of perpetual unrest. And it was the sin of man. It was his transgression of the law of God. So if sinful men will be reestablished in true rest, right? If man will have peace with God, then it is his sin that must be dealt with. His sin must be atoned for. There must be a solution to the sin of man. And that solution does not lie in anything in this present world. 
living on a parcel of land in the Middle East will not rectify the sin of man. And this is why Joshua was not able to give the people true spiritual rest. He gave them a temporal rest, a physical rest, a political rest, but he was not able to give them rest for their souls. He greatly improved their outward condition in comparison to what the people experienced in the land of Egypt, but this outward rest could not change the hearts of men, and it could not atone for their sins. Right? If men will have true, spiritual, everlasting rest, something greater must be accomplished, and someone greater than Joshua must arise who can lead the people of God into this eternal rest. The first Joshua did not give rest to the people, but another Joshua has come, our Lord Jesus Christ, who by offering his own life for the sins of the people is able to make eternal redemption for their sins. He is able to vanquish our enemies, sin, death, and Satan, and lead us victoriously, not into the earthly land of Canaan, but into the heavenly Canaan, into the spiritual rest of heaven. And this is who we should look to for salvation, only in Jesus Christ. And this is what the apostle is proving by quoting and explaining Psalm 95 in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. If the work accomplished under the ministry of Joshua was sufficient to pay for the sins of the people, then there would not have been the need for Christ to come into the world. But clearly, Joshua could not usher in this rest. And this is why the prophet David... Some 500 years after Joshua gave the children of Israel the physical rest in the land of Canaan, David is speaking about another rest that is yet to be accomplished, a rest that would be brought about by the Christ. And that is the rest that we need to enter into, and this is the rest that is for the souls of men. So let's pick up today in verse 9, and we will continue our exposition here of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. There in verse 9 it says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Here, this is the conclusion to the previous statement. That if Joshua had given them rest, if he had given them spiritual rest, if his work was sufficient to take away their sins, then there would not be the need for another day of rest after the time of Joshua. There would be no need for the Christ to come into the world to die on the cross to be a sacrifice for sins because all of this would have already taken place and been paid for by Joshua. There would be no need of the incarnation, no need of the perfect life of Christ, no need for his sacrificial death, no need for his resurrection from the dead. If the work of God accomplished under Joshua had given them rest, then Christ's work of redemption would not have been necessary. However, the only work Sufficient to save sinners is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the only way that our sins can be atoned for. This work was not accomplished during the days, during the time of Joshua. And that is why there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A future rest that the prophets speak of continually in the Old Testament both before Joshua and those who came after Joshua. They continue to speak about the days of the Messiah, about his coming and the spiritual redemption that God would accomplish through him. All of the prophets are testifying to the coming of 
Christ. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verses 17 to 26. Acts chapter 3, verse 17. says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all his prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successor onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed." For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you away from his wicked ways. They are all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward. Also, he says, announced these days. Right? This is what the apostle is pointing out in our passage. The prophet David is a successor of Samuel. And he is speaking of these days in Psalm 95. He's telling the people of the spiritual rest to be accomplished by Jesus Christ and the need to enter into that rest. So since Joshua did not give the people rest, therefore there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This Sabbath rest for the people of God is that rest that we enter into in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Through faith in Him, that results in the washing away of all of our sins and establishes peace with God. And this Sabbath rest contains all of the aspects of God's rest. First, there is a great work of God brought to its completion. This work is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. His incarnation, His life, His death, his resurrection, all of these things necessary to bring about our salvation. This is the ultimate work of God seen in the person of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there is a great work of God accomplished, brought to its completion in the person of Christ. Secondly, there is a call by God for men to enter into this rest by faith in Christ, to receive the blessings, the benefits, the privileges of this rest by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. As it says in Romans 10:9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then there is a day set aside a day given as a pledge or a token that we have entered into this rest. And this is the Lord's day, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. 
as it says in Psalm 118, 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. The rest of creation was lost by the entrance of sin into the world. The rest of Canaan was temporary and was also lost because of the sin of the Jewish people. But the rest of Christ remains. This is the only rest that will continue for all eternity. God resting in Christ. God being satisfied with the sacrifice of his life for our sins. And our entering into that rest by believing in him for the forgiveness of sins. And according to verse 9, who is this rest for? He says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, who are the people of God that he is referring to? Well, he cannot mean unbelieving Jews. He cannot mean the Jewish state or the nation of Israel. For we know that very few of the Jews believed in Christ. It says in John chapter 1, verse 11, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. The only way that we can enter into this rest is by receiving Christ by faith. But when he came to his own, and when he presented this rest to his own people, and called them to enter into that rest, did they enter in? For the most part, they rejected him. Also, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 Verses 45 and 46. Acts 13, verse 45. says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. There they repudiate and they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. That is the culmination of this Sabbath rest for the people of God. They were not worthy of this Sabbath rest because they would not believe in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Since the ultimate rest of God is found in Christ... And since faith is the means that God has established for a man to enter into this rest, right? No one will ever enter into rest in Christ apart from faith in him. No one will have eternal life apart from faith in Christ. And since the majority of the physical Jews fail to believe in Christ, then they are not included here in this term, people of God because they will not enter into that Sabbath rest. So who is this Sabbath rest for? Who are these people of God that he is referring to? This is the true spiritual people of God. As it says in Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29, where it says that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. There the apostles clearly states, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. No one is a child of God. No one belongs to the true people of God simply by his physical heritage. 
One must become that spiritually. It takes a new birth. It takes regeneration in order to be a true child of God. And this is as it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The sons of Abraham, the true spiritual sons of Abraham, who enter into the Sabbath rest of God, are those who are of faith. Now, it is true, in a sense, that the Jews were the people of God, and they had certain privileges, certain benefits and blessings that were not true of the other nations. But simply being a physical descendant of Abraham was not enough to grant a man the spiritual blessings of the covenant that God made with Abraham. The spiritual blessings being the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Just as it was with the rest in the land of Canaan. The rest in Canaan that the nation of Israel entered into, was that a blessing? Of course it was. It was a great blessing. It was a privilege. It increased their benefits in this life. Right? It gave them a great proximity to the things of God. But simply living in the land of Canaan was not sufficient to take away their sins. Something greater was necessary. Something greater than being born from this nation that came from Abraham. A new birth is necessary. A spiritual revival, a spiritual birth must take place. Something greater than simply dwelling in the land of Canaan. It was necessary to enter into the true spiritual rest of God, that spiritual rest founded upon Jesus Christ. And no one can enter into this rest, and no one can have a right to be called a child of God simply based upon his physical heritage. One must be born again. You must be born of water and spirit. And isn't this what Jesus and John the Baptist are constantly preaching against the people, against the Jewish people of their own day? Because where are they putting all their hope and confidence? That we are children of Abraham. And Jesus tells him God can raise up from these stones, from these rocks, children from Abraham. This is what God can do. So don't put your hope in that, but rather you must be born again. And this is as it says in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is those who are of faith who are the people of God. The true people of God are believers, whether they are physically descended from Abraham or whether physically they come from the Gentiles. And the greatest privilege that God can bestow upon us is for him to be our God and for we to be his people. This is the spiritual blessing that we need. For God to take us as his own possession. For we have the right to be called children of God. For us to have the right to call God our God. To say he is our God. He is the one that we serve. And that we are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. And all of the blessings that accompany that great privilege. And this is the spiritual rest that exists for the children of God. 
And we must understand that believers, Christians, under the new covenant, after the coming of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, have lost nothing compared to those under the old covenant. Our situation is greater than their situation. Right? Our position spiritually is better than theirs. There is no blessing, no benefit, no privilege that relates to salvation that was possessed by the physical Jews under the old covenant that is not exemplified and even amplified under the new covenant that is even greater in our situation. Is there anything, any component necessary for our salvation that they possessed but we do not possess? Any spiritual blessing that they had, that they had a right to, that we don't have a right to? Well, one might say, well, they had the land of Canaan. They had the temple. They had the priesthood. They had the sacrifices. They had a physical nation. They had an earthly king. They had divinely appointed feast days, right? We don't possess any of these blessings, right? They had those things, but we do not. But what were these blessings that they received through these outward elements? Were they not but shadows and types of Christ? And the blessing, the true spiritual blessing, found in any of these elements of the Old, Co- of the Old Covenant was not in the outward thing itself, but what it represented. The spiritual reality that was communicated to the people through that physical element. So, for example... The temple was a great blessing given to the Jews, and no other nation on the, on the earth during that time had that temple. Now, other nations had temples, but their temples were false temples. They were not divinely appointed and ordained and given by God like the temple that was there in Jerusalem possessed by the Jews. No other nation, only them. It was a blessing given to them and no one else. But this was a blessing from them only so far as it represented to them by way of shadow the person and work of Christ. The blessing of the temple for the Jews was not founded upon the physical building. It wasn't because of the physical land upon which it was built. It wasn't because of the physical animal sacrifices performed there by the visible physical priests from the family of Aaron who were the ones who ministered there. All of these physical components served a greater purpose. And that greater purpose, the true blessing of that temple, was found in the spiritual, in the invisible, right? What was visible and physical was a shadow of something that was invisible and something that was spiritual. And this is true of all of the outward, temporal, physical blessings associated with the Old Covenant, And the true blessing of these things has to be realized by faith in what they represent. Colossians chapter 2 verse 7 says, Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In speaking of these things, these components, he says that they are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance of these things belongs to who? They belong to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment, the substance of all these things. So are we at a loss compared to them? Did they have it better than us because they had a physical temple? Because they had a physical nation? Because they had animal sacrifices? Because they had the priesthood and an earthly king and feast days and the land of Canaan? 
Absolutely not. They had Christ presented to them in a shadowy way, through these visible physical elements, in a mere shadow. But we don't have Christ in a shadow. How do we possess Christ? In his full substance. In the full realization and revealing of the will of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we stand in a better position than them, for it is better to possess Christ in substance than to have him in the form of a shadow. And this is true of Gentiles in the New Covenant, and it's also true of believing Jews in the New Covenant. They're in a better position than they were previously under the Old Covenant. This is much of what the apostle is dealing with in the meaty parts of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. He's showing here that the new covenant, the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not men. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the temple. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a far more excellent ministry by as much as he also is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. A better covenant enacted on better promises. So how can we be inferior in an inferior situation to them? It's impossible for this to be the case. And again, we must remember that the apostle is writing to Jewish Christians who are being tempted to forsake Christ and return back to the shadowy ways of the old covenant without Christ. But there is no blessing in the old covenant worship apart from Christ. There never has been, and there never will be. There may be some temporal benefits, but what good does that get you in terms of eternity, in terms of heaven, in terms of the forgiveness of sins? Even Ishmael had some temporal blessings from God. Even Esau had some temporal blessings from God. Even Jeroboam had some temporal blessings from God. But what benefit does that gain them in the life to come? Zero at all. And what benefit is there in any of these things apart from Christ? There is no privilege enjoyed by the people of old that does not continue into the new covenant. But then whatever was burdensome and cumbersome to them is taken away. The state of the Jews under the old covenant was a mixture of both blessing and bondage. Blessings in that salvation through Christ was presented to them, right? It was given to them and they could come to know the way of salvation. And there is spiritual blessing found in Christ. But bondage, because this blessing came to them in the form of many shadows and types, which contained detailed 
meticulous rules and regulations. Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. This is the way it was under their covenant. This is as it says in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians 4, verses 1 and 2, which is important to remember that both Hebrews and Galatians are dealing with, one of the main topics they're dealing with is this relationship between the two covenants, between the old covenant and the new covenant and the fulfillment that comes in Christ. Also, the book of Romans is dealing with this in great detail as well. Romans, or Galatians 4 verse 1 says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. The heir, though he is the heir of the house, he's treated as a child and he is treated no differently than a slave. And this is what even the true people of God were like under the old covenant. Though they were heirs, though they were children of God, though they had salvation and the forgiveness of sins through Christ, yet they still were bound, they still were obligated to follow these many rules and regulations in terms of their outward worship, the rituals that accompanied those things. So for example, the prophet David. David knew, right, as a true believer, he knew and understood that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away his sins. There's no way that the prophet David was believing and putting his hope in the blood of an animal. So he knew that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. He knew that the only way that his sin could be atoned for was through the coming of the Christ. The Christ giving up his life, dying on the cross for his sins. Yet, he was obligated throughout his life to offer repeatedly, year after year after year, animal sacrifices, right, with many rules and regulations dictating the way that those things were to be done what he was to bring, for what reason he was to bring it, where he was to bring it, who he was to bring it to, right? All of these things were regulated with great detail under the rules, under the law given by Moses in the Old Covenant. So in one sense, he was a son because he was free. He knew his sins had been atoned for, that they would be paid for through the work of Christ when he died on the cross for his sins and was raised for his justification. And that is where he put his hope. But in another sense, in terms of the outward forms of worship, he is like a child. He's like a slave. He's like a servant in these types of things. And this is the way it is under the old covenant, but not under the new covenant. Those things are done away with. Whatever is old is ready to pass away, and it already is fading away. But whatever was good and spiritual and a blessing, all of those things continue. So whatever was a blessing continues in the new covenant. Whatever was of bondage has been taken away. So that the gospel state of the church is an amplification of divine spiritual grace and favor to God's people. There's more liberty, there's more grace, there's more privileges because according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, it has been enacted on better promises. Do we lose anything by putting our faith in Christ? Do we lose anything that they possessed in our current state today? Absolutely not. But we have everything to gain. Because the true spiritual rest 
The Sabbath rest for the people of God is found in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 10 says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. The one who enters into his rest. Here, the man that enters into God's rest, founded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, that man has rested from his works, just as God rested from his works. Right? In Christ, we find salvation. In him, everything that we could not obtain from the law, it resides, it is found in Jesus Christ. We have rest in Christ because in him we know that God is pleased with us. We have God's favor. We have his approval in Christ. All of our sins have been atoned for. That we have a source of righteousness in him that makes us fit to dwell with God. We rest in Christ because we see and understand that there is nothing else that is needed. I don't need to perform some work, some ritual, some act of service to complete what Christ has done. Christ does not do 90% and then I make the last 10% up. Christ does not do 99% and then I make up the last 1%. But rather, Christ has done everything for me. 100% of our salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ and we rest in him when we see this. We rest just as God rested. God is satisfied with Christ in his work. We should be satisfied with Christ in his work and not seek to add to it by our own rituals, by our own service, by our own acts of obedience, as if we, through our own righteousness, could add anything to what Christ has done. We simply trust in his finished, completed, perfect work done on our behalf and all of our sins are taken away. And then we are at perfect rest in Christ. This is rest for the souls of men. A rest that cannot be found through works of the law. If my rest is dependent upon my obedience to God, upon my own righteousness, based upon my adherence to the law of God, how can I ever have rest? Is there any passage in Scripture that states, this is Jerry Jackson, in him I am well pleased? Is that found anywhere in the Bible? And did God testify about that concerning any person in their natural state, in the state of their sin? How can I ever know for certain that my efforts are good enough, that my works are sufficient, that my righteousness will pass through the judgment of God? Have I worked hard enough? Have I been meticulous enough? Have I striven enough? Have I been scrupulous enough? Are my works good enough? Are they sufficient? Is there something that I'm lacking? This is what would be tormenting us all the time, always in doubt, always wondering, have I done enough? There can never be any assurance. And if there is assurance, it is a fool's assurance. It is a blind assurance based upon lies and not based upon the truth. For the scripture testify against mankind, and it testifies against our law keeping. That whatever we produce by way of obedience is filthy before God. And it does not pass God's approval. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Clearly state 
that by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous in the sight of God. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. And here, who are we talking about? Everyone. If we go back to verse 9, are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then he begins, is there anyone righteous? No, not one. He's talking about the entire human race. Everyone who's ever been born into this world, the scriptures clearly teach that by our works of the law, we cannot be justified in the sight of God. So there is no rest found in seeking to establish my own righteousness. For God has already testified against the putrid deeds of man. There's no assurance. There's no confidence. There's no knowledge of God's approval. But where is there rest found? There's rest in Christ. By faith in Him. We have God's testimony that He accepts us as His children. That in Christ, He wipes all of our sins away. That in Christ, we can have eternal life with God. That through His righteousness, we can be made righteous in the sight of God and be clothed with such a righteousness that makes us acceptable to God. And this is as it says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9 says, And may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It is not a righteousness that I derive on my own, through my own efforts, through my own work, through my own obedience to the law. But it is a righteousness that comes to me from another source. And where does this righteousness originate with? It comes from God, and it is given to me on the basis of faith. And is God pleased with His Son? Do we have a testimony in Scripture from God the Father telling us what he thinks about his dearly beloved son, Jesus Christ. Well, he does in Matthew 3, 17. There at his baptism, it says, Behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And in John 6, 27, it says, On him, the Father, God, has set his seal. God has set his seal, his imprint, on the Son, on Jesus Christ. And we know from Psalm 2, it says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves, without any doubt, that God loves him, that God is well pleased with him, that God has accepted his sacrifice for our sins. God is pleased with his son, Jesus Christ. He is satisfied with him, and when we are united to Christ by faith, then God is well pleased with us as well. This brings rest to our souls. For we have confidence that in Christ, God no longer regards us as his enemies, but as his dearly beloved children. And whatever is true of Christ becomes true of us. Does Jesus have the right 
to boldly approach the throne of grace? Of course he does. Well, who else has the right? All of his children. Not because of who we are, but because of him and what he has done. Will God deny his son anything? No. Then he will not deny us eternal life either because we are hidden in Christ. As it says in Colossians 3, verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are hidden in Christ. And just as God entered into his rest in the person and work of Christ, when we by faith believe in Christ, we enter into this rest as well. And just as God rests in him, we rest in him too. We are satisfied and content that Jesus Christ is all that we need to give us salvation, to give us the forgiveness of sins, to give to us eternal life. We put all of our hope in him for the forgiveness of sins and depend solely upon him, not on anyone else and not on anything else, only in Christ alone. Verse 11, Hebrews 4:11. Therefore, he says, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Here, the apostle comes back to his overall exhortation. This is his exhortation that he began all the way back in chapter 3, verse 6. He began urging them to continue in the things of God, that we are God's house if we continue. There is this need for perseverance, for endurance, for us to continue and to be diligent in the things of God. Now, he has already said in chapter 4, verse 3, that we have entered into this rest. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, we who have believed enter that rest. When we believe, we enter that rest. Well, if we've entered that rest, why is he saying we need to be diligent to continue to enter into that rest? Because both of them are true. Right? It is true that we have entered into rest in Christ. That in Him, we have full forgiveness of all of our sins. That in Christ, we have a right to be called children of God and that we have an inheritance secured for us in heaven. So in a sense, we enter into rest at our conversion so that we have a real possession of true spiritual rest in Christ. But has that rest been brought to its completion? Have we entered into the full manifestation and the full realization of spiritual rest in Christ? And that is no. It still awaits a future day. And so until it is fully realized, there is the need for us in this life to continually enter into this rest, to abide in Christ day after day after day. And in this life, we are continually growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No one here possesses a full, perfect understanding of Christ. No one here possesses a full, perfect understanding of the love of God, of the grace of God. And no one here has experienced a perfect understanding of the rest of God found in Christ. But as we grow in our faith we come to a greater understanding of these precious truths and promises. The rest in Christ, the peace we have, the joy that is ours in Christ, we have these things in part in this life. We possess them, but we're also growing in them. We're coming to a greater understanding and realization of these things. 
not the full possession, but as we grow, we have it by degrees. By degrees, through our sanctification, we come to new understandings of spiritual rest in Christ. As our faith grows through the word of God, through prayer, through the use of God's ordinances, we experience and we learn new depths to the rest and peace and joy that is ours in Jesus Christ. The joy and peace of this rest is revealed to us over and over and over again throughout the time of our sojourning. And as we experience a deeper and fuller understanding of the word of God, of the mysteries of Christ, of the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, then we enter into this rest again and again and again. This is how he means it here. We must be diligent to daily enter into this rest. We have to abide in Christ throughout the remainder of our time on earth. Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. There, he wants them to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, he says. Right? Will we ever come to the end of that? Will we ever exhaust the depth, right, the length, the breadth of the love of God found in Christ? No. So in this life, we know it in measure. We know it in part. We know it sufficiently for our salvation and our conversion. But as we go through this life and as we grow, we come to a greater, fuller understanding of the love of God that we have in Christ. And this is the same as it is in our passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. In Ephesians 3, the emphasis is on God's part. God is the one who must reveal this to us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, the emphasis is on our responsibility. Right? And which one is it? Is it God that does it? Or are we to be diligent to seek these things? And the answer is both. God must do it. He must give us the understanding. But he does not work apart from us. He works in us with us and through us. And in terms of our responsibility, we must be diligent to pursue a greater understanding and a greater experience of the rest of God in Christ. And as we pursue this rest, and as God graciously grants to us a greater understanding of this rest and the many blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus, then it will keep us from falling through following the same example of disobedience. Diligently entering into this rest day by day will keep us secure and keep us from falling away like that wilderness generation. That's what happened to them. They were not diligent to enter into God's rest. They did not taste and see that the Lord is good. 
they did not have a greater and greater desire for the grace and mercy of God. And so when they were put to the test, they fell because of their unbelief. Remember Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 19. Hebrews 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Striving diligently day after day to enter into this rest, meditating daily upon the rest we have in Christ, the innumerable mercies of God found in Jesus Christ, this will keep us from falling away. It will keep us steadfast and immovable, always clinging to Christ. It will keep us from failing to enter because of unbelief. If we would enter into the eternal rest, then we must be diligent to daily abide in Christ, to enter into his rest again and again and again, day after day, so long as it is called today. Not that we are being reconverted every day, right? We only need one conversion. One conversion will do. That is when we first enter into that rest. But we must abide in that rest. We must continue to put our faith in Christ from our conversion until the end of our life. As it says, the righteous shall live by his faith. We must live by faith. And what we did at the beginning, enter into that rest, is what we must do throughout the remainder of our life, which is enter into his rest. We must abide in him so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It says in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed in overflowing with gratitude. Just as you have received him, so you must walk in him. Just as we have entered that rest, so we must be diligent to enter that rest. Just as we have believed in Christ, so we must continue believing in Christ. Until when? Until we are at home with the Lord. Then we will see him face to face, and then we will no longer need faith anymore because we will have the full final realization of those things. This is the way that we must live until we come to that perfect realization of the rest of God found in Jesus Christ. So until then, let us be diligent. Let us strive so that none of us would be overcome by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, today so thankful and grateful for the many blessings that you have given to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that in him we can have true spiritual rest for our souls, that we can have the knowledge that all of our sins have been washed away. 
Lord, that we can know that we have been clothed with a righteousness. Lord, not a righteousness that comes from our own deeds, but the very righteousness of Christ. And Lord, we know that this makes us acceptable in your sight because you have declared in so many places the pleasure that you have in your Son. And Lord, we know that if we have been united to him by faith, that our very life has been forfeited and that we have been hidden in Christ so that for you to see us is to see him in us. And Lord, as you are pleased with him, so you are pleased with us. Lord, we thank you for this assurance and this knowledge that there is a rest for the people of God, that, Lord, there is a way that what was lost in the Garden of Eden by Adam through his sin can be regained for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for sending him into the world to accomplish this great work. Lord, so perfectly displaying your wisdom and your power. Lord, of your mercy and your grace. Lord, we thank you that he came and died on the cross for our sins and that he has been raised for our justification. And Lord, that you have opened our eyes to see, Lord, that we were under your wrath and condemnation. Lord, that we did not have rest for our souls. And that, Lord, the only way that we can have salvation was through him. Lord, thank you for revealing this to us. Lord, for drawing us to your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, for granting us the forgiveness of sins through faith in him. And Lord, just as you have begun this good work in us, we pray, dear Father, that you might bring it to its completion on the day of Christ. Lord, that you would continue to work in us. And Father, that through your spirit and through your word and prayer, Lord, through the encouragement of the saints and Lord, through the use of your ordinances, Lord, that you might give to us a fuller understanding of your love found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, all that you have done for us, the many blessings that become ours through faith in him. Lord, we pray that just as we have entered this rest, Lord, that we would be diligent to daily enter in again. Lord, that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, that we would not fail to enter because of unbelief. But rather, what would be true of us is that we are living by faith, by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. So, Lord, may we be those who are diligently striving, Lord, to enter into this rest. And, Father, we ask that you would give to us the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Lord, until you bring us into that perfect state of rest, Lord, we pray that you would continue, Lord, to give us Lord, an understanding of all that you've done for us. And that even in this life that is filled with much pain and sorrow, Lord, with many hardships, that, Lord, we would also be filled with joy, with peace, Lord, that are unspeakable because of what we know you have done for us and what we know awaits us in the life to come. So, Lord, may we keep these things ever on our mind and we pray that we would walk in Christ and abide in him from this day until the very end of our life. Lord, keep us in this faith. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.